Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the Women's Social Club chapters are open now in Atlanta, Boston, Charlotte, Chicago, D.C., Denver, Jacksonville, Florida, Memphis, Miami, New York City, Pasadena, California, Wilmington, North Carolina, with multiple chapters in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the surrounding areas. If you're in those cities, come join us at thewomensocialclub.co. And if you don't hear your location, visit our website and click start your own chapter. We'll see you soon and let's get to the show. Throughout the process, something happens and it's like finally a light turns on and they're like, oh, I'm spending my money that I could be dividing with my spouse fighting over it. And, you know, it just doesn't make sense. You get to that point where you're spending more money than you stand to gain. To all my hustlers, dreamers, love dealers, I'm that kind of girl. Work hard, play hard, for my own heart, might just rule the world. Welcome to the Women's Social Club, a women-supporting women group where we make it easier to connect with new friends and our communities while supporting our local women-owned businesses. I'm Hannah Weisberg, founder and CEO of WSC, and today we're talking to divorce attorney Jamie Davis partner at Gaylor Hunt Davis Taylor and Gibbs, PLLC. She's the author of A Year in a Day, Divorce Without Destruction, and she hosts a podcast with the same name. She fights for women who are going through the toughest time in their lives, and she's going to tell us how we can set ourselves up for success just in case. Growing up, Jamie discovered pretty quickly that the law was the perfect path for her. So I think when I was younger, my parents would say that I like to argue. Um, (laughs) I don't know if that made me inquisitive or if I was just obstinate and stubborn, but they would absolutely tell you that I would argue with you about anything. When I was in elementary school, I'm fairly certain my mom told me at one point that I wanted to be a roller derby queen, but thereafter, somehow I changed gears and decided that law was the way to go. Jamie's been practicing family law for 21 years now, and she's been through hundreds of cases, and she knows there are different things that people can do to prepare themselves in all life stages to protect themselves and their assets, including having some potentially uncomfortable talks with your partner even before getting married. I think it's really important to have some of those tough conversations while you're dating. You need to be able to talk to your future partner about money, for example. You need to have an understanding of, you know, is this person responsible with money? Do they have unpaid bills? Do they have tax debt that you don't know about? If you can go ahead and start those conversations early and see if you're on the same page about finances, I think that's a good thing. As things get a little more serious and maybe you're, you know, engaged, you're thinking about marriage, I think a premarital agreement can be a good thing to have. And premarital agreements, you know, sometimes people think prenup. So it's only associated with having money and being wealthy and that sort of thing. But what sorts of things do premarital agreements sort of protect you from? Well, not everybody needs a premarital agreement. I think there are a few cases where they are more necessary than others, let's say. So let's say that you have children from a prior relationship and you want to be able to provide for your children in your will. You want to be able to leave your property to them. A premarital agreement would be a good idea for you because 
there are certain inheritance rights that your spouse is going to acquire just by virtue of the fact that you're married. A premarital agreement can be used to waive those rights. And what that means is that your spouse would not be able to automatically inherit from your estate. You could choose. So if you wanted your spouse to inherit, you could provide for them in your will, but they're not going to have these automatic rights. So if you want to leave everything to your children from a prior relationship, you can. What about business? So like, let's say you have your own business pre-entering into marriage. How does a premarital agreement sort of protect your assets in that situation? Yeah, businesses can be really complicated if folks get separated. So trying to protect those on the front end with a prenup is a good idea. If you had it before you got married, it is your separate property. But, you know, businesses grow, they change in value, they kick off income, hopefully, that you can use to pay your bills. And so with the prenup, what you can do is say, hey, this business is mine, it stays mine, any money from it stays my separate property, and it doesn't become marital. And with the premarital agreement, you can define what does become marital and subject to division between you and your spouse if you get separated. So one way people do it is they say anything that's jointly titled, that'll be divided between the spouses. But if the folks keep it separate in their own individual bank accounts, then that would be their separate property and not subject to being divided with their spouse. And then what if you purchase a home together before you're married? I know a lot of people who've done this. How does that work? Would you say to have some sort of agreement written up in that situation? Let's say you're not planning to get married or you're far from getting married, but you want to live together and it's cheaper, more cost effective. You can get equity out of home ownership versus renting. So does it work similarly with that? So if you have your own home before you get married and you're in a dating relationship with someone and you would like them to move in, a premarital agreement would not work for that situation because you're not getting married. But, you know, you could have some sort of contract with the person if you wanted that, you know, discussed a division of household expenses. It's interesting because it almost becomes like a landlord-tenant situation at that point, which can be a little weird. But the key to remember if you own your home before you get married Unless you want to gift your home to the marital estate, so to speak, you shouldn't retitle that home to the two of you jointly. Because if you do, you will be presumed to have made a gift to the marriage. So let's say you are married and you are in the process of wanting to leave the marriage. So you are married and you're thinking about separating The action plan with that, one of the first things that you mentioned is you don't actually need papers to be legally separated. Yeah, that's a a big myth that we hear a lot. They're like, we don't have any papers. We're not legally separated. And then I'm like, well, actually, you kind of are. To be legally separated in North Carolina, you just have to live under separate roofs with the intent of at least one of you. It can be your intent, the other person's intent, that the separation be permanent. And at that point, you are legally separated here. Wow. So going through a separation can be a really huge and overwhelming process. I unfortunately know people who've been through this process. I'm in my early 40s. So most of my friends and I, I mean, we've been married for over 10 years. And I feel like you've gone through a lot of life with someone at that point. And a lot of times it isn't anything that anyone's done wrong. A lot of times it's just people growing in different directions. And thankfully, most of the separations I've witnessed have been pretty amicable. 
But when it comes to the first steps and advice for that, you mentioned like baby stepping through the process. So how would you get started if you're thinking about separation? What would your advice be? As a first step, I would recommend at least having a consultation with a lawyer. You don't necessarily need to retain someone, but at least go sit down for an hour, figure out you know what law might apply to your particular set of facts and what you could expect moving forward. You could also start gathering financial documents. You're going to need those if you decide to separate. So bank statements, credit card statements, tax returns, things like that. And, you know, keep your eyes open. I know that's a very basic thing to say, but if you suspect some sort of infidelity on your spouse's part, you know, pay attention to the cell phone, pay attention to the computer. Just keep your eyes open for behavior that seems different than normal. Are there laws where if there is some sort of infidelity, again, I have no background in this, so I am truly just like, tell me all the things. But if there has been infidelity, like, does that change things in terms of like what happens and who gets what and division of assets and all that kind of stuff? So kind of yes and kind of no. North Carolina is a no-fault state when it comes to divorce. So the only thing you need to get divorced is to be separated for a year and a day, and then you can file for your divorce. Property distribution, adultery, cheating, it, it doesn't matter. The only kind of marital misconduct that would matter to your property division is if somebody was wasting marital assets. For example, let's say they had a gambling addiction or they were spending money on a boyfriend or girlfriend. Obviously, those are not marital expenses, And so, you know, that kind of misconduct would come into play. But infidelity really only matters when it comes to alimony. If you are a dependent spouse, meaning you are the spouse who needs support from the other spouse to help pay your expenses, and you have an affair, you are barred from receiving alimony. Likewise, if you are the supporting spouse and you commit adultery, our statute's a little bit punitive. It says you shall pay alimony. So that's really the one claim where um, adultery matters most. It can affect child custody if, let's say, the person is engaging in very risky behavior that involves the children. Like, for example, let's say they're meeting random people on dating apps and bringing the people back to the home where the children are. I mean, hopefully no one is doing that, but, you know, those sorts of behaviors could be relevant to child custody. And going back to the beginning in terms of like planning and the baby step process, one of the first things you say is don't just leave your home, talk to a lawyer first. Absolutely. Once you're out, you're out. So let's say that you leave the house and you take your things with you, your clothes, personal effects, things like that. You can't go back to the house without your spouse's permission or it could be considered domestic criminal trespass, and you could be arrested for that. Oh, my God. So it's big. So get some legal advice before you decide to leave. (laughs) And if someone is going to take that first step to retain legal advice, how does that look in terms of payment? Because you had mentioned a lot of people will come initially before, you know, having that conversation with their partner to find out their options and, and all of that. So if they do seek legal counseling, How do they typically pay for that? Yeah, I mean, timing is important. So if you want it to still be a secret that you are having a consultation with a lawyer, then usually what folks do is they borrow from friends or family or they use a credit card that's just in their name that their spouse is not going to see the bill for, something like that. 
there's nothing wrong per se with using funds from a jointly held bank account to pay for your lawyer. But obviously, your spouse is going to probably know about that, which you may not want them to know just yet. And most likely, you're going to be credited with having received that money. In most cases, legal fees to pursue a separation are not considered a marital expense. And so your spouse most likely is not going to be expected to pay for those fees. There are some exceptions in certain instances, but in most cases, that's not true. And what's the average cost? I know it depends, but roughly what is the average cost associated with retaining a lawyer, especially in the beginning? So I don't know that there's necessarily an average cost so much as a range. Consultations are fairly inexpensive. Some folks offer free consultations. Some folks charge a few hundred dollars, $500 or so for a consultation. Retainers vary depending upon what you ask the lawyer to do. If you want a separation agreement, which is just a contract between you and your spouse that says who gets what, what the custody schedule is, and who pays who support, that's going to be a lot cheaper than if, you know, you're ready to file a lawsuit and go duke it out in court. I would say initial retainers range anywhere usually from 5000 to ten or 15000 But a highly contested family law case where you're in court a lot, you're taking depositions, you're doing discovery, those cases can cost upwards of $100,000. It really just depends. And something that I feel like that is really great about your approach is when someone does come to you, you really do try to start with mediation. Like you do recommend like trying counseling and things like that to work through it. I think the title of your book and podcast, like it speaks to that divorce without destruction. When you do have a couple come to you or a person come to you, what does that mediation process look like? Is it different for everyone? How does that work? I would say that it's different and it really depends on the client. I would not be able to represent both parts of a couple. I could only represent one spouse or the other. It depends on what they say to me during the consultation. You know, if they seem to be on the fence and they seem to be having some trouble with their spouse, but, you know, they're not telling me they're ready to leave, I'm going to ask, have you tried marriage counseling? And if the answer is no, I'm probably going to suggest that they try that first because it may just be a communication issue or something else that they can work on and fix. If they are adamant that they want to be separated or maybe they already are separated, maybe their spouse left and they didn't have a say in the matter, we're going to try to work through it first and see if we can do it amicably, see if we can reach a settlement. If the other side retains a lawyer, a lot of times it makes it easier. We'll just voluntarily exchange financial information, create a spreadsheet, try to figure out what the property distribution is going to look like, and hopefully settle their case and draft a contract for them. You know, other times it's not possible and we do end up in court. But even if we file a lawsuit for equitable distribution, our courts require that we attend mediation. And so usually mediation ends up being a part of the process at some point. I will say that the vast majority of family law cases get settled in mediation. It's, it's a great process, especially for the family law client. The way it works, we've actually been doing some by Zoom and some in person and some are hybrid, but... You would be in one room with your lawyer. Your spouse would be in another room, whether it be a real room or a virtual room with his or her lawyer. And the mediator, who is usually an experienced family law attorney, goes back and forth between the rooms trying to facilitate a settlement. They're really um, they're taking the offers back and forth and they're trying to show both sides, you know, some of the weak points in their argument to try to push those folks closer to reaching an agreement. 
So with your podcast and your book, what sort of topics do you talk through? What sort of things do you cover? Divorce without destruction. So talk us through a little bit about that. So I started the podcast back in 2017. And at that time, there seemed to be this perception, at least this is what I was noticing, that folks thought divorce had to be nasty and contentious and that there was no way to get through it otherwise. I'd also noticed that there seemed to not be a lot of resources out there for folks to read about divorce law in North Carolina. So I started brainstorming and I'm like, all right, how could I be helpful? And so I started reaching out to therapists, child psychologists, financial professionals, other lawyers, and talking with them just about different areas. So, you know, we talk about everything on the podcast from co parenting to divorcing a narcissist to, you know, things like selling your home when you're getting divorced. It's really, if it's divorce related, we're talking about it. That's awesome. I feel like it's so needed, especially for women. I mean, one of the the things I took away a lot from our previous conversation was you saying the highest risk job that you can have is a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, people look at me like I'm crazy when I say that, but it's absolutely true. I mean, if you are a stay-at-home mom and you don't have your own financial independence, if you do, you know, we would be having a different conversation. But let's say that you really don't have any insight into the family finances. You don't earn your own income. Your job is to be a homemaker and to take care of the children. If your spouse decides to leave you, your options are a little more limited in terms of your ability and resources to hire counsel to assist you, for example. And how can they actually go about protecting themselves? So let's say someone is a homemaker and a caregiver for the family, and that is their sole role. They don't have any sort of income coming in, but they're also like happy. They're not planning on getting a divorce or anything like that. But What can they proactively do just to protect themselves? I think it's important for folks to maintain some financial independence. You know, it doesn't have to be anything huge, but just having a bank account that's in your name, that's your money, that you can do with what you want is really important. If you're able to have a credit card that's just in your name, I think that's also a good option. And this is not really a a financial tip, but maintain relationships with your support system. And what I mean by that is stay connected to your family, stay connected to your friends. If your marriage ever does go south and you do find yourself wanting to get separated, you're really going to depend on these folks to help get you through it. So just make sure you, you keep your people close. Have you ever had someone go through a divorce process, get divorced, and then get remarried? (laughs) Actually, yes. I have had that happen twice in my career. Really? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So how long? Like, what did that look like? They got separated. They were probably separated for over a year, worked out a full contract between themselves. I mean, of course, they were fairly amicable, right? Like, these are not the people duking it out in the courtroom. I mean, they got along fairly well. I would say they were probably remarried to each other within three to four years of being divorced. I guess they found each other again. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, you get lost in relationships. It's easy to lose your own identity. And then, you know, especially as parents, you become teammates first. Right. So the intimacy part of a relationship takes a lot more work than like the teamwork side. 
So I can see people coming back full circle, like once they have a, a chance to like re-come back to themselves, refine themselves. So that's super interesting. I've always wondered how that worked. What advice would you give to someone listening who is interested in going into family law? If they're in law school, if they're looking at different options, what would you say, what would you recommend them to try out, to look into mentorships, things like that? I think for folks in law school interested in family law, I would recommend trying to clerk at family law firms during the summers in between law school. There's also lots of great volunteer family law opportunities. Some of the law schools offer family law clinics that they can get involved with. And actually, third-year law students can practice under a licensed attorney. And so in those law school programs, that's great experience to get, you know, real hands-on family law experience. I will tell you that working with real family law clients is very different than reading about family law cases in a law book. You're dealing with very emotional people who are going through one of the worst things in their lives. And at first, they're not making really great decisions because, you know, they're in it, right? They're, yeah. they're anxious and they're spiraling and they don't know what their future looks like. So it really is important if you're thinking about family law to make sure that it is right for you. I have found that it's one of those areas that as a lawyer, you either love it or you hate it. And there's really not much of an in-between. What would you say are the most complicated cases when it comes to walking someone through the divorce process? That's an, a really good question. I think it depends. Custody cases are always really tough. I think it's really hard for some parents to come to terms with the fact that even if they were the primary caregiver for the children while the couple was married, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to play out that way after separation. At least in Wake County, our judges tend to lean toward a 50-50 custody schedule unless there's some reason why one parent is unfit you know, to have shared custody if they have a drug or alcohol problem or a mental health issue or something like that that would prevent them from being a good parent to the child. And so I, I think that that can be really hard for parents to, you know, really just come to grips with that they're going to have to share custody of their child. Do you see, you mentioned before, the majority of cases settling out of court. Do you see a lot of amicable divorce processes? Like, do you see people in a more positive mindset versus being aggressive or duking it out, so to speak? So in my experience, the cases that end up in a courtroom, usually one side or the other has an untreated or an undiagnosed mental health condition. And those cases can be tougher to settle. Recently, folks throw around the term narcissism a lot, but, you know, it's a real thing and there are folks that have it. And so if you find yourself on the other side of a case from a narcissist, you're more likely, in my experience, to find yourself in a courtroom. I also think that cases have different stages and folks can start off very contentious and you're like, there is no way this case is going to settle. We're going to end up in court for everything. And throughout the process, something happens and it's like finally a light turns on and they're like, oh, I'm spending my money that I could be dividing with my spouse fighting over it. And, it, you know, it just doesn't make sense. You get to that point where you're spending more money than you stand to gain. 
With that said, people will spend their last penny fighting over their children. And so that can be a little more difficult. But when it comes to the property and support issues, those really should settle just from you know a, a financial standpoint. So if you are married currently and you know, you're in a good spot, you didn't have a prenup, but since the marriage has started, you know, someone has started a business, assets have changed. Can you do sort of a post nump? Actually, yes. We call them post-marital agreements, but you can contract with respect to property after you're married. You can't contract with respect to alimony if you're still living together or custody or child support, but you can with the assets if you want to and if your spouse will agree. I think that's the tricky part with a post-marital agreement. You know, you've got the successful business that your spouse is probably going to argue they helped you create and you're going to want it to be your separate property. They may or may not agree with that. One particular set of circumstances where post-nups, we see them quite a bit, is if there has been infidelity and the spouses want to try to reconcile the marriage, but the spouse who's been cheated on isn't really willing to try the reconciliation unless they have some assurances and some protection moving forward what it might look like. And so a post-marital agreement can be really good in those cases. When it comes to kids... I know I come from a family of divorce. My mom divorced my dad, though, when I was like a year old. So I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything other than them being separate. My stepdad, who I actually call my dad, he married my mom when I was four. So he's really been the father figure in my life. And I don't consider it to be any different than if he were my biological father. But Coming from a child of divorce, I know that my mom never received, what's it called? Not alimony, but when you're paid. Child support? Yes. Because she would have had to share custody with my biological dad if she received that support. And he was unstable. So there was a lot of toxic behaviors that she didn't want me around. This was also in the 80s. So like, I feel sure that our justice system has evolved since then. What does that look like now for people who do have children with someone who isn't in a healthy space, but at the same time, like, do they still have to pay child support even if they don't get to see their kids? So yes, in most cases, child custody and child support are not really linked in that way. The amount of child support is based in part upon the number of overnights that the child spends with each parent. And so if somebody has 100% of the overnights and somebody has zero overnights, they would actually owe more child support to the other parent. We have a couple of different child support schedules. One is for more than 123 overnights and one is for less than 123 overnights, basically like a third of the year. And so that will cause the amount to go up or down depending upon which schedule you're on. And then I also had a friend when I was living in New York, she was going through a divorce. She wasn't from the States. So I think she was from South Africa, I'm pretty sure. Yes, I'm pretty sure it was South Africa, but she ended up marrying an American citizen. They had two sons, but I remember she wasn't able to move back home because her kids were American citizens. Her husband didn't want them like leaving the states or doing custody from that far away. So it almost feels like, you know, you're trapped into living. So she still lives in New York, like primarily they do get to do visits back to 
South Africa, but I mean, she's there until they're 18. Right. And, and that happens a lot. The court can't prevent you from moving if you want to move. But what they can say is, okay, well, you move back to whatever country you would like to go to. The children are going to stay here with the other parent. And so relocation cases, that's what they're called when one person wants to move out of state or out of the country with the kids, are some of the most difficult to settle because it's basically a zero-sum game, right? Like they either stay or they move. But that can be really tough for folks. Yes. I do not envy that process. No, not at all. And I'm sure navigating that on the lawyer side of things, too, is emotional and tricky. Do you feel when you come home from a night like of working, are you ever just like drained? Oh, absolutely. All the time. I mean, it's, it's emotionally heavy work. I love it, but it certainly does take a toll. I mean, I'm tired after hosting really fun events. I go home and I'm like, I can't see people for two days. So I can't imagine it being in such a serious environment, how exhausting and taxing that would be. Do you have plans as far as the future goes? Like, do you plan on practicing law for as far as the eye can see? Or do you have other plans? I'm fairly certain I'm going to continue practicing law for as long as I can. Eventually, I would love to teach family law. I enjoy the subject matter a lot. I find it to be fascinating. It touches upon so many other different areas of the law. You know, it's not just the family law itself. It's corporate law and tax law and trust and estates and real estate and just all of the things. So it's just, it's very interesting. Rarely a dull day at the office. Oh, I can only imagine. If you weren't doing family law, would you be doing criminal law? Or is there another aspect of law that you would be interested in? I don't know. I haven't thought about any other area of the law in over 20 <laughs> years, so I think I'm kind of stuck. Yes. Is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners that we didn't cover today or any topics, any takeaways and tips and tricks, anything like that? While the legal aspects of separation and divorce are, of course, very important, I think more important than those things are self-care. And anyone going through a separation or a divorce needs to really be mindful that they are taking care of themselves. As a lawyer, I can do more for my clients when my clients are healthy enough to engage with me in the process. There are some decisions that I can't make for my client, right? Like I can't decide for them whether or not they'll accept a settlement offer. I need my client in a really healthy headspace so that they can make those decisions. And so I would say therapy is great if you're going through a separation. I recommend it to all of my clients. Friends and family, get your support system together. If someone has recommended that you take, your doctor has recommended that you take medication, take your medication. Or it could be as simple as go to yoga, go for a walk, go get your nails done. Like whatever it is that makes you feel good about yourself and de-stress, it's more important than ever when you're dealing with a separation. And how do our listeners connect with you? Where can they find you? Email is probably the best way. My email address is jdavis at divorcestuff.com. And our office phone is 919-832-8488. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This definitely is a heavy topic and something that's not fun to go through or think about. But I think it's really important that I'm someone who definitely is a more focus on the, the happy, exciting things going on and put the things that are scary and I don't want to think about in the back of my mind. 
But I think it's really important just to know your options before if you ever need them. So I appreciate you coming on today and talking us through this topic. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much to Jamie Davis, who you can find at divorceistough.com. Also be sure to check out her podcast, A Year in a Day, Divorce Without Destruction. We'll have a link to that plus her book in the show notes. And a few ways to follow Women's Social Club. One, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. And two, you can visit thewomensocialclub.co and find the community that's closest to you. If there's nothing close to you, please let us know. And third, follow us on social media where you'll find clips of this podcast as well as Women's Social Club's events throughout the country. We're at Women's Social Club on both Instagram and TikTok and at The Women's Social Club on Facebook. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Hannah Weisberg, and on behalf of everyone at The Women's Social Club, we can't wait to welcome you into our sisterhood. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.